When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Controlling coronavirus, China reports its deadliest day, but a lower number of new cases. Dieselgate's dent, Daimler's profits drop, and the dividend gets slashed. And sprinting to the finish line, T-Mobile finalizes its mega merger. It's Tuesday, it's clearly gonna be a long one. Let's make a move. I'm still laughing. A warm welcome to First Move. Clearly going to be a sprint today. Great to have you with us. Now, the good news is, and you can take a look at what we're seeing for markets right now, we have a firmer tone, particularly compared to what we saw this time yesterday. And I was describing to you U.S. stocks right now higher pre-market, the S&P and the Nasdaq sector who've been at all-time highs, in fact. Europe and Asia following suit, also trading in the green. Investors seemingly shrugging off fresh words of warning from the World Health Organization. The WHO chief saying overnight that the coronavirus, quote, holds a very grave threat for the world. And yet, China's top medical advisor saying today that the outbreak may peak this month as the rate of growth in new cases slows. Soothing words, too, from famed investor Ray Dalio, who says the impact of the virus on markets has probably been exaggerated and will likely be short-lived. You know, we've been arguing that stocks are telling us one thing about what we're seeing right now. Bonds and commodities that have come under pressure, commodities like oil, telling us a different story. Take a look at what we're seeing there. Ten-year yields are a bit firmer today. They've recently, though, fallen to three-month lows, and the three-month and ten-year yields have inverted yet again. Remember, we were talking about that in the middle of last year. All prices, meanwhile, rising today. They hit 13-month lows on Monday on continued fears that the virus will slow global demand. We'll talk all of this through later on in the show, but just keep an eye on Fed Chair Jay Powell's testimony before Congress today. In his prepared testimony, he said that the coronavirus has the potential to harm the global economy, but he says the current U.S. monetary policy is appropriate for now. The coronavirus, as I'm sure you've already guessed, remains our top driver today. An update first. China, as I've mentioned, reporting the deadliest day of the outbreak so far. The number of deaths 
and a single day crossing into triple digits. Worldwide, the death toll now tops 1,000 lives. Cases globally totaling over 43,000. The good news, though, and I do want to remind you of this, some reports of recovery 4,000 patients, in fact, treated and released from hospital in China. David Culver joins us now from Beijing. David, a lot to discuss here. The, the good news here that people are recovering, and it's important that we talk about these numbers in particular too. Also, the words from the Chinese that perhaps we see a peak this month, and I'm going to couch that in great detail here. What more are we hearing? Julia, it is important, and I'm glad you've done this, to put it into context, because a lot of numbers are being thrown at us with this right. outbreak. And so you've got to look at, at what really is pertinent versus those that can just cause hysteria. So when, when we're seeing the total death tolls from each day increasing or staying the same, but certainly not declining, that in of itself is alarming. But you also have to look at the recovery rate, and that's something that you pointed out. And again, these are data and figures that are coming from the Chinese government. So take that for what it is, but at the same time, it's all we can rely on for this. And so you see the recovery rate, and it is now at 8.2%, as the Chinese health officials have said, compared with 1.3% just two weeks ago. So some successes there. And then you look overall at the, uh, the number of daily reported cases, and this is something that Chinese health officials are certainly Stressing, and there have been at least five days of decline from the previous day over the past two weeks. So putting that in perspective, we now hear from an epidemiologist here in China, a man named Zhong Nanshan, who is very well known with the outbreak in 2003 from SARS and really gained international fame for his handling and assessment of that situation. And he's the one who has come up with this mid-February to late February potential peak in the number of cases. He also suggests that he's factored in several things, including some of the uh, real-time developments, so the day-to-day -day numbers that we get and in turn share with you, as well as the risk factors and how the Chinese containment effort has been carried out. And there's been a lot of criticism about that containment effort because, to be quite frank, it is extreme in some places. I mean, telling somebody only one person in your house can leave the home every three days, which is the case in some local jurisdictions, is pretty extreme. Nonetheless, this epidemiologist suggests that that is actually the right approach here and believes it's going to be effective going forward. Now, ultimately, the containment effort is something that uh, officials are, are still trying to figure out its effectiveness. They're really not sure where it stands. But one thing we do know is that the central government is showing publicly their displeasure with uh, the local government. And we saw this, Julia, coming about. When this was rising from the city of Wuhan and Hubei province in particular, we noticed the central government came in and swooped in, took control, and was trying to, as it was perceived by the public, clean up the mess that was not taken care of early on. And now we know at least two health officials at the provincial level have been fired. We're also reading in state media, I just pulled up an article looking through a short time ago, Global Times, and they suggest that several other officials, Julia, have been called from Wuhan up to Beijing to be scolded by the central government. It seems like this is only the beginning and what will be a series of reprimands. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to um, to analyse and assess here. Clearly, there's an underlying desperation for the worst to be over here, but we have to be very, very cautious with um, suggesting anything here. David, great job. Thank you so much, David Culver there. All right, let's move on to our next driver. Deal done. Stock in the mobile giant Sprint soaring 
some 72% in pre-market trading after a judge ruled in favor of allowing its merger with T-Mobile. That stock is up some 9% too. Claire Sebastian joins me. Claire, clearly the market had become incredibly cautious about this deal ever getting done, but I think we should describe how unprecedented this was. It had federal approval. This was individual U.S. states going, hang on a second, we've got a problem. And now a judge has said, we're not having it. The deal goes ahead. Yeah, Julia, this was highly unusual. This was a deal that was approved by the Department of Justice and by the Federal Communications Commission last year. But more than a dozen uh, state attorneys general, led, of course, by the Attorney General of New York, decided to fight this in court. They have now lost. The judge, uh, in, a, in a very large 170-page opinion, has basically uh, struck down all of their key arguments. One, uh, that they were trying to prove that this would be anti-competitive, that the reduction in the U.S. Uh, wireless market from uh, four major players, including AT&T and Verizon, down to three would lead to higher prices eventually for consumers. He said they failed to prove that. He also said uh, they failed to prove that Sprint could continue to be a viable player on its own, a viable fourth player. He said given their uh, cons consistently declining uh, ability to meet their targets, that was also unproven. And finally, one of the uh, major concessions that the two players made in, in agreeing this deal with the regulators was that they would divest significant assets to Dish Network, with, which is a satellite provider, so that they could start to become a wireless player in their own right and build out their 5G network. Now, the states were trying to argue that they would not eventually be able to do that. The judge also struck that down. So it looks like this is now going to go through, that, that four major players uh, in wireless uh, in the U.S. will become three, but of course, DISH being, uh, in theory, a new entrant there. So this, a major moment for this market, Julia. Yeah, there's enough competition out there. That's what the, uh, the judge was assuming, I think, in this case. It's quite fascinating, though, because what we've seen since 2018 is what wireless price is actually staying pretty steady. But we know that they've been pushing prices lower to try and steal customers from AT&T and Verizon. Be interesting to see where prices go from here on out, perhaps. Yeah, I think that that's a critical point. It was interesting that, that both Verizon and, and AT&T stock were up today on this deal. Perhaps uh, you might read into that, that 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 may not be a good sign for, for the consumer. But of course, this is also a lifting of, of uncertainty over the market in general. It was interesting. The judge did talk about this in his opinion. He said that T-Mobile has redefined itself over the past decade as a maverick that has spurred the two largest players in its industry. That's, of course, Verizon and AT&T uh, to make numerous pro-consumer changes. He said he believes uh, that given their track record, they will continue to do that. The new T-Mobile now combined with Sprint. So the judge clearly feels that while there is a risk, he did say, in the future that this could lead to, 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 to anti-competitive uh, changes in the market, that overall the risk of that uh, was low, partly because of this track record of T-Mobile. I will say a characteristically colourful reaction from T-Mobile's outgoing CEO, John Legere. He said this is a huge victory. In his statement, he said, look out, dumb and dumber and big cable, we are coming for you. <laughs> and some very happy investors today as a result. Uh, certainly wealthier too. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. It's going to be fascinating to watch. All right, let's move on and talk Daimler now. Dealing with a collapse in profits. We're talking a 60% collapse in profits. The company says cost-cutting is the only road forward. It's still paying huge fines too related to Dieselgate. Paul Monica joins me now. Paul, I mean, this is the fourth profit warning, I believe, since May of last year. They've slashed the dividend now. They've already announced job cuts. What more can they do here? Because this looks really painful. 
it is uh, looking increasingly bleak, Julia. As you point out, they've slashed the dividends. So that's bad news for shareholders. They are cutting costs. They've already announced some job cuts uh, last year. And I think now the big question is, how can Daimler adjust to the new reality that is an auto world where electric is what everyone is talking about. This little company named Tesla has obviously disrupted the entire industry, and Daimler needs to invest in electric vehicles a lot more aggressively in order to become competitive. Even Volkswagen, Daimler's German rival that has been struggling because of Dieselgate as well, they have at least been able to invest more in electric cars and become a bit more of a presence there. Daimler doesn't really have that yet. So that's going to be a big problem, I think, for this company going forward. And that's the key for investors here. They were simply slow to make a decision to invest in electric vehicles. So even with the legacy issues of the, of the diesel gate, in addition to now having to get up to speed with European regulations, of course, which, which tightened up in January of this year, they simply haven't got the direction of the company right to focus on cars of the future. Exactly. The good news for Daimler is that sales are still growing and Mercedes had a great year. So obviously Daimler owns one of the preeminent luxury brands in the auto world. Now they have to figure out a way to transition to a more electric future. And that obviously includes the Mercedes brand. Yeah, yeah another one that's fascinating to watch. Tough times in the car industry. Paula Micah, thank you so much for that. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we're following around the world. Voters in the U.S. state of New Hampshire heading to the polls right now in the First of Nation primary. Senator Bernie Sanders clashing with former Mayor Pete Buttigieg after their heated contest in Iowa. And Senator Amy Klobuchar looking to emerge as a surprise contender. Miguel Marquez is live in Dover, New Hampshire for us. Miguel, is this going to be the story of the night? It's, it's the Buttigieg versus Bernie Sanders. But also, what happens with Biden here? Because there are a lot of people looking at this and saying, actually, this is sort of the beginning of the end for Biden after this vote today. Yeah, I mean, I think most people expected Bernie Sanders to do very well in New Hampshire. I think after his poor showing in Iowa, uh, the Sanders campaign was really looking to at least uh, uh, maybe not win, but at least place or show here in New Hampshire. And I think the pressure is on for them to do that. They move on then to South Carolina and Nevada uh, and then on to many more states. So I think the Biden campaign hopes to sort of just get out of New Hampshire in one piece and then move on to areas that are, are more diverse uh, and maybe play to his strengths a bit more. What we're seeing, we're in, in, in Dover, Ward 1. There's about 20-something thousand votes across the city of Dover at play here. This is a very democratic uh, area. Officials thought it would be very busy at this point, and it really hasn't been. It's been steady, but certainly not gangbusters, uh, the number of voters coming in here. The, the last time you had a contested race like this was in 2008, and they had, for this particular ward, about 2,600 voters come through. They, there's about 4,000 total uh, available for this particular ward. At this pace, they'll be below the that. So that will be a concern to Democratic officials if they don't get uh, those numbers up and, and show that sort of enthusiasm. Uh, 
perhaps later today, after work, uh, they will get a big rush here. This place is going to be open for 12 hours today. I've spoken to a lot of voters as they've left this area and, and left voting, most of them voting for Senator Bernie Sanders, some for Pete Buttigieg, some for Elizabeth Warren. But that that rift between the, the center lane in American politics and the, and the left lane is, is, is even evident here today. I was talking to one Bernie Sanders supporter, and as, as I was chatting with him, somebody walked by and muttered, socialist. Uh, and the guy just sort of shrugged it off and said, well, you know, people have, they, 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 they think too much of him. They, they, they put him in a box and it's, it's not really true. And he likes a lot of his more progressive policies and, and says, no matter who the nominee is on the Democratic side, whether it's Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg or Bernie Sanders, they will support that person because everybody I've spoken to here, this is a Democratic and Republican primary, but mostly Democrats are showing up, showing up because it's contested, uh, Democrats say no matter who the eventual nominee is, uh, they will vote for that nominee because they want to oust Donald Trump. Julia? Yeah, I feel like for an international audience here, they'll be looking at this and going, first question, to what extent is, is a, a place like New Hampshire representative here of America more broadly? Because uh, the copy says that Pete Buttigieg is the unlikely nominee, that, that Bernie Sanders is the unlikely nominee here for the Democratic Party. And then I think the other big question would be, why is New Hampshire different from Iowa and the chaos that we saw there? Can you explain those two things for me? Yeah, I look... look. Yeah, so, so the, the, the caucus Sorry, process in Iowa is a much different process. They, they, they completely changed everything from the way the ballot looks to the way that they report everything. And it was clearly did not go very well. This is a primary where people walk in, they are registered to vote, they go in, they vote, they tick a box and it's done essentially. And this is there's only one question on the ballot today. Who are you voting for in the presidential primary, either Democratic or Republican? There's actually 32 individuals on the Democratic ballot, but they only get to pick pick one of, of those 32. So it's a much simpler, much more straightforward voting process than Iowa. They, don't, they do not expect any uh, big uh, drama later in the evening when it comes to reporting the results here. I can tell you they've, they've had about uh, 300 people so far come through the doors here, uh, which is steady but not exactly gangbusters busy. Uh, and New Hampshire is Look, it's it, it's not as as uh, diverse as other states. It's it's much more white. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders is from Vermont next door. Elizabeth Warren is from Massachusetts next door. So those two were sort of picked to perhaps do better here. Pete Buttigieg has sort of uh, picked up some momentum since Iowa. Amy Klobuchar seems to have picked up some momentum since uh, Iowa and since her 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 uh, performance in a debate here uh, just before the election just last week. So it, it is an open question as to, to what will happen. These first four contests, Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, Nevada, and South Carolina, though, it is a tiny number of the of vote that Democrats need. Once you get into the bigger days, like Super Tuesday on March 3rd, then we'll have a much better sense of where this race is. Julia? Yeah, all about Super Tuesday. Good job. There was no need to sigh there. You handled it perfectly. <laughs> My apologies for lots of questions. <laughs> Keeping you on your toes. Thank you so much, and uh, great to have you with us. Thank you. All right, let's move on. Uh, North Korea accused of violating UN sanctions again, according to a confidential UN report seen by CNN. Pyongyang has been enhancing its missile and nuclear weapons programs and illegally exporting coal to pay for it. 
The report says North Korea used ship-to-ship transfers to Chinese vessels. Beijing has denied it's helping Kim Jong-un evade international sanctions. All right, we're going to take a quick break on first move. But coming up, exaggerated effect. Hedge fund giant Ray Dalio makes some bold predictions about the coronavirus and current asset pricing. Plus, it wasn't us. China's full-on denial, insisting it had nothing to do with that mega Equifax data breach. Plenty more to come. Stay with First Move. Welcome back to First Move, live from the New York Stock Exchange this morning. Still looking like a solid open for U.S. stocks as we await Fed Chair Jay Powell's testimony before Congress today. The Nasdaq and the S&P 500 set to hit fresh record highs at the open to the Dow, closing in on record territory once again. Amazon was the big mover in the previous session, closing above $2,100 a share for the first time ever. Look at that. It's higher by 2.6% pre-market too. Oil. Let's take a look at what's going on there. Falling oil prices continue to pressure the energy sector. ExxonMobil, a big Dow loser on Monday, falling over 1%, as you can see there. Let's talk through what we're seeing in commodity markets. Joining us now, Jeremy Weir. He's CEO of Commodity Trading Multinational, Trafigura. Did I get that right? You did. Good morning, Julia. Yes, we're doing well this morning. We're improving. Can you talk to us about what you're seeing? Because I know you operate across 41 different countries. You have a great global sense. A quarter of your business is China-based as well. What are you seeing in terms of, of contract activity? We're seeing a slowdown in China. Um, the, the main issue is that you've got a combination of Chinese New Year, which is often a slower period, and then we've, we've had the coronavirus on top of this. So therefore we've had a lot of people not able to relocate back to their offices, and they're prohibited in doing so, they're prohibited in travelling. So what's, that happens, what's happened in demand is that you've seen probably a 20% reduction in gasoline demand and aviation fuels as well because people aren't flying anywhere. So therefore the response by the Chinese market there is possibly a reduction of circa 3, uh, 3, uh, 3 million tonnes, or 3 million barrels, sorry, of oil a day in refining capacity. So there's been a bit of a shock to the system. We're also seeing this in uh, the minerals and metals business as well, where just demand is off and production is slowing down as well and materials are just not flowing. I mean, that makes sense to your point. Things were already slow and are normally seasonally at this Correct. time of year because of the Chinese New Year, but we just haven't seen the pickup that we yeah. would normally see afterwards. That's, that's correct. And I, but I do think, you know, what we're seeing is some measures by the Chinese government. There's a liquidity measures, which are in the banking sector. But the general feeling is that we're going to start to see a pickup in activity once we get over this issue of the coronavirus. Uh, we've already seen, for example, in the, uh, in the state grid, they've, uh, they've brought forward some uh, uh, construction of high voltage lines, which right. is going to, you know, utilise metals, etc. But I think we're going to see some stimulation uh, by the Chinese government, which is going to see a pretty rapid pickup once we get over this with this, this problem. I mean, what we've seen reported in the last 24 hours in particular is sort of broken contracts with buyers in China saying, look, this is a natural disaster equivalent. This is one of the sort of get out clauses in, mm. in our contracts here. Are you seeing that too? And I don't want to get into the legalities of, sure. of look, what we, that we, means. We, we, but... are, we are seeing pressures around contract uh, performance, uh, potential force majeure declarations right. uh, around these contracts. 
We have seen a significant fall in prices. If you think the oil price was at sort of north of $60, it's now $50. Okay, we've seen a small increase this morning. Uh, and copper prices, zinc prices and other metal prices are down between 10 and 15%. And when you see such significant moves, in these markets, you start to get sort of problems around contractual performance. So right. that's also adding to the problem. So if those prices picked up, because at some point, if, when, I'll be very cautious about what I say, we see yeah. a, a stabilisation and a recovery as far as this virus outbreak is concerned. If those prices come back up, people could go, OK, we'll still honour those contracts. Or it may, look, Like anything, it can, be a, it can be a renegotiation process. So uh, you would start to see more performance. If you have stable prices, Typically, you'll see, you know, you won't have these sorts of issues. But we are seeing a lot of a lot of pressure on businesses. So, therefore, to some degree, it's understandable what we're seeing. I think what is interesting, though, is when you see what has happened under the trade negotiations in the US. In the second half of the year, uh, we expect to see a significant increase in oil demand and oil shipments from the US to China in the region of over 200% increase compared to what we were witnessing before any of the trade disputes started. Do you still think they'll honour that in light of what's going on? Uh, that's a government decision, yeah. so therefore, but I, I look, I think, you know, it's very much factored into our calculations that we're going to see a, a very big increase in demand and we may well see uh, sort of price impacts How as a result of that. How investors overreacted in your mind to, to what we're seeing? Are the markets pricing an overreaction to the... the drop in it's been activity that you've seen. Look, it's been severe and I think the fact is it's a great unknown. Yeah. Uh, if we had, uh, if we were very certain about what the recovery rates would be, or how long, how prolonged this this virus situation would be, I think we can then make comment to that. But the fact is, we don't know at this stage, so there's a high degree of uncertainty, and there's been very sort of drastic measures imposed by the Chinese government, and so therefore that's put, if you like, uh, a little bit of concern around the international markets, and they've reacted very, very quickly. Jeremy, fantastic to have you on. We'll get you back because you have a fascinating business, and we'll talk to you in more detail about Pleasure. that next time. Jeremy Weir, there, the CEO of Traffic Europe. The market open is next. Stay with us. first move. That was the opening bell this morning at the New York Stock Exchange and we're seeing nice gains for US stocks. The tech sector outperforming. Now I have to say the S&P and the Nasdaq in fact hitting all-time highs early on in the session. Key event this morning as we've mentioned the Fed Chair Jay Powell beginning two days of economic testimony on Capitol Hill. His prepared statement already mentioning the risks of the coronavirus outbreak potentially spilling over to the US economy but right now he says Fed policy seems appropriate. Any further headlines on that we will bring them to you for now. The Global Movers, Sprint and T-Mobile shares sprinting ahead in the session. A federal judge signing off on the $26 billion merger of the two wireless giants today, thwarting an attempt by more than a dozen states to block the deal. And no further concessions, important too. Under Armour, meanwhile, shares tumbling after disappointing results. The apparel giant's Q4 sales missing expectations and the company says their first quarter results will take a more than $50 million hit due to the coronavirus outbreak. 
In the meantime, Samsung shares finished higher in the South Korean trading session today. The tech giant officially unveiling its new Samsung Galaxy S20 phone. It's being called the first major 5G phone to hit the market. Samsung will also show off its new Galaxy Z flip phone too. Wow, back to the future on that one, flip phones. All right, let's move on. A full-throated denial from China today on charges it launched one of the largest cyber attacks in history against credit rating firm Equifax. The U.S. has charged four members of the Chinese military with the 2017 cybercrime. Sensitive data on some 145 million Americans was exposed, as well as the details of the inner workings of the company. The U.S. has blamed Chinese hackers for previous cybercrimes as well, including the theft of personal information from health insurer Anthem some five years ago. The CEO of Equifax joins us now. So fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for being on the show. Your response at this stage first to authorities in the United States finally pointing the finger and saying there were Chinese actors involved, but also their denial here. You remain confident. Yeah, thanks, Julia. Thanks for having us on. Uh, yesterday's announcement was a really important milestone for Equifax after the 2017 cybersecurity event. You know, we've been collaborating with the authorities, both the FBI and the Justice Department, uh, as they did their investigation. And to have this milestone where they've uh, indicted uh, uh, the military arm of the Chinese government uh, is an important step forward. But I think for all of us, not only Equifax, every company around the globe, it really raises the stakes around cybersecurity and the kind of attacks that uh, companies are under. Uh, when the military arm of a foreign government is actually conducting it. I mean, the belief here is that these individuals will never be brought to justice in the United States. Do you think actually just the announcement, particularly given what you went through as a, as a company and the individuals, the consumers that were involved, do you think it's enough of a deterrent, particularly at this moment in time when we're all very aware of the risk of, of cyber security and attacks? It's a, it's a higher bar now. There's no question. You know, when you've got sophisticated, well-funded military arms of foreign governments conducting these attacks on the United States, on U.S. consumers, and on U.S. companies, um, it's a different bar. And it requires us to really up our game even further when it comes to cybersecurity. Uh, we're in the middle of a three-year program following the cyber event of investing a billion and a quarter in our technology and security with the goal of being an industry leader in uh, data security. And I think for all of us, when you have these kind of attackers, uh, you know, it's one thing when it was a hacker or a, a criminal ring trying to steal uh, uh, credit card numbers for identity theft purposes. It's very different when you have uh, this kind of a uh, organization that's linked to uh, a foreign government attacking uh, U.S. companies in this fashion. So we just really have to be more diligent uh, and more focused around data security. And obviously that's the path Equifax is on. You know, you have a global business. You operate in more than in 20 different countries around the world. You mentioned the more than a billion dollars worth of spending just to shore up the security measures that you operate as a company. But where do you see that the greatest vulnerabilities here? Yeah, it's, it's one that, you know, that we're uh, really focused on data security. We really house in every market we're in really sensitive consumer and commercial data, and protecting that is paramount, uh, particularly after the 2017 cyber event. And as you said, we operate in 23 markets around the, uh, outside the United States, uh, in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Spain, UK, uh, Latin America. You know, we have uh, credit reporting agencies uh, in those markets, and we have the same protocols around data security and technology in those markets. And uh, that investment 
investment of a billion and a quarter is a very substantial amount for a company of our size. Uh, back in late, early 2018, we had really two paths to go. We could have spent a few hundred million dollars and taken uh, security to really an industry-leading capability in our legacy environment. We decided that the right decision was not only to enhance our security to industry-leading capabilities, but also to take our entire legacy environment to the cloud. We believe that's going to provide better security, but as importantly, better utilization for our customers and consumers uh, around uh, using and protecting that data. I mean, for you as a, as a company, you have to put data privacy, you have to put security front and foremost to ensure trust from consumers at this stage. But that's business responsibility. What about government responsibility? Because if we talk just specifically about the United States and China here, we've just seen a, a phase one trade deal. There was hopes, actually, that there would be more concrete measures to protect against the threat of state actors or those associated with the state to prevent this kind of attack going forward. And a lot of people were disappointed that there weren't more concrete measures. Do you share that disappointment, sir? Well, I have to tell you that uh, we're quite proud and pleased with the work that the FBI and the Justice Department did over the last two years. And if you listened in on Attorney General Barr's uh, press conference yesterday, the attack was incredibly sophisticated. It had multiple individuals involved. They did it over a long time frame. And the fact that the United States, um, number one, was able to find um, the culprits, uh, the Chinese military that did this, uh, is really a big deal. And second, uh, that Attorney General Barr is really taking these kind of actions to make sure other foreign nation states that are doing the same thing understand that the U.S. is going to take action. And we think that's a big deal. Is and are customers now that have their data with Equifax safe? Can you give that assurance at this stage? And, and I think my follow-up question to that is I read recently that six months after that enormous data breach, half of people still hadn't checked whether their data had been compromised, that they hadn't checked their, their credit scoring. Do we all need to be more careful about where we put our data and about following up with these kind of things? Two questions. Well, yeah, so the fir first question, Julia, is, um, you know, when I joined in April of 2018, the first thing I said to our team, um, to our customers, to U.S. consumers, and to the regulators is that we are going to take security to the top of our priorities, and we are going to be not good at security, not even great at security. We're going to be an industry leader. And I think the billion and a quarter we're investing, the people that we brought in, the seriousness of that is, uh, really uh, in, exhibits how serious we are about data security. When it comes to consumers, we really encourage, and actually Attorney General Barr yesterday in his press conference suggested that too, as well as the FBI representative, that consumers should watch their credit reports, look for activity that's not theirs, and make sure they're uh, aware of it. Uh, most of us, most U.S. consumers um, don't do that, and we think that's an opportunity. And there's also a lot of free services. Um, you can come to Equifax and get a free credit report. Uh, you can go to the other credit reporting agencies and check, you know, what's happening with your credit. But the bar is higher, and uh, Equifax is taking that very seriously. We know our competitors are, the whole industry is. And just one last point, Julia, is we're really working hard to be really transparent and sharing, you know, with not only our competitors, our customers and other industry, you know, this cybersecurity uh, kind of attacks is going to happen to all companies. We get attacked every day at Equifax, and defending it is one that we have to take on, but it's one as the industry, and doing that through sharing information, sharing best practices, and we're trying to be really transparent about what happened to Equifax so it doesn't happen to another company. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Mark Bigger, great to have you with us, the CEO of um, Equifax there. Come back and speak to us soon, please. 
Thank you. All right. Thank you. After the break, investors struggling to work out when the coronavirus will ease. Billionaire investor Ray Dalio playing down the market impact. We'll have all the details after this. Welcome back to First Move. And as you heard at the beginning of the show, the famed investor Ray Dalio says the market impact of the coronavirus has been exaggerated and is likely to be short-lived. The billionaire hedge fund manager told a panel in Abu Dhabi he's expecting a rebound in assets. John Defterios chaired that panel and joins us now live. John, great to have you with us. Fascinating comments from Ray Dalio. What was he assuming in order to make that judgment? You know, what's interesting here, uh, Julia, is that when the co-founder of the largest hedge fund speaks, people listen. You could hear a pin drop in the audience today. It was wall to wall. It was uh, spilling over into the hallways. It's interesting. He's taking the premise here, Julia, that he has visited China about 70 times over the last 35 years. So he thinks that he knows the infrastructure, the infrastructure of government. He says, I am not a specialist when it comes to viruses, but I can tell you, even though it was a sputtering start uh, in the response from the province, from the top down with President Xi, he's extremely confident they can put an action plan into place and deliver. Let's take a listen. It's a big one-time shock. How big it becomes, I can't say. We all have our thoughts and opinions. Probably it's contained probably it passes, I assume. And then um, in terms of the pricing of assets, I think it's probably had a, a bit of an exaggerated effect on the pricing of assets um, because of the temporary uh, nature of that. So I would expect more of a, a rebound. I think it most likely will be something that uh, in another year or two will be, be well beyond and we won't be talking about. That's like looking back to the SARS crisis of 2003. Vidalio admits that we're looking at a $14 trillion economy. Uh, the commodity shock here has been felt in the Middle East, of course, because of the bear market we're seeing on oil. Vidalio did say, Julia, what I thought was uh, fascinating, uh, we're not in the best position to confront a major black swan like this. Uh, we've been printing money, interest rates have been low, we have an asset bubble, and he's suggesting not a crisis at this stage, depending on how this plays out in China, but looking two years down the road, can the central bank play as a lender of last resort and prop up growth and not worry about price inflation going forward and asset inflation? Yeah, and a fascinating comment to make to your point, and we've been discussing it on the show as well, the idea that commodities are under pressure, all markets in a bear market, yet stocks today here in the United States are at record highs. But I do want to just redirect what he was saying to one of the other potential swans out there, which of course is the, the broader battle between the United States and China, technology, geopolitics. He said that's a, a balance that has to be managed very delicately, I believe. What did he have to say on this front? Well, this is in our sit-down interview, which will be uh, airing a little bit later because we're working on uh, putting that uh, together as we speak. But he was saying over the last 500 years, we've had major changes in cycles and leadership. Uh, of the 16 times that we've done it, 12 have led to war. And he's not suggesting the U.S. and China will go to war, but he says we have to wake up to the realities today. Uh, China has grown into a middle-income economy, but more importantly, it's a leader in technology innovation right now and the U.S. can't stand on the sidelines. So he said, trade, get this, Julia, trade is the tip of the iceberg. 
There's many more things to worry about in U.S.-China relations. It is about geoeconomics, geopolitical power, of course, and managing the transition so it doesn't spiral out of control. He didn't think it was going to be the case, but he says that's why it is so tense today between Washington and Beijing. Yes, a rising superpower challenging an incumbent. History says that means big trouble. That's John exactly Terrace, right. we look, yeah, we look forward to uh, that interview later on in programming today. Thank you for that and great job with the panel. All right, coming up, a battle for New Hampshire. U.S. Democratic presidential contenders fighting to win the first in the nation primary. Why today's results could be make or break for at least some of the candidates. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Democratic voters heading to the polls across New Hampshire to pick their candidate for the White House. The latest CNN poll shows Senator Bernie Sanders leading in the state with 29% of the vote support, followed by former Mayor Pete Buttigieg and then former Vice President Joe Biden. Billionaire Mike Bloomberg did not file for the New Hampshire primary, focusing on Super Tuesday next month instead. Meanwhile, President Trump holding a rally in New Hampshire yesterday, looking to draw attention away from that Democratic contest. Greg Valliere is the Chief U.S. Policy Strategist at AGF Investments. Greg, fantastic to have you with us. We could have a debate about who comes out on top here, and it's looking like a Pete Buttigieg versus Bernie Sanders, but you say the real headline here actually is the sort of ongoing slump and demise of Joe Biden here in terms of support. Is this the beginning of the end? I think so, Julia. Great to see you. I think that Biden can't finish fourth two weeks in a row. Yeah. He finished fourth in Iowa. He could finish fourth in New Hampshire. You just can't do that without your financing drying up. No one's going to want to contribute to him if he's keeps finishing fourth. So this is a really crucial night for him. I wouldn't predict he's out of the race in a week or two, but I'm not sure how long he can last not finishing first or second. You know, we were talking earlier on the show about honing in on, on Super Tuesday, and I made the point that Pete Buttigieg is referred to as the improbable candidate for the Democrats yeah. here. Similar story with Bernie Sanders. Are we starting to look like all roads lead here to the person who spends most, which is Mike Bloomberg? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, there doesn't seem to be a dominant player. Uh, I've talked to lots of Democrats who, in the establishment of the party who are terrified by Bernie Sanders. They feel not only would he lose to Trump, but almost as importantly, with him at the top of the ticket, they lose Senate seats, House seats, gubernatorial seats. So out of desperation, they may have, uh, agree to a, a, a very awkward marriage uh, with uh, Mike Bloomberg, uh, who has said quite clearly that he's prepared to spend two to three billion dollars uh, on this campaign. You know, Greg, it's quite interesting because you used the word terrified there of, of Bernie Sanders. Yeah. The word communist, socialist gets yeah. thrown around right. in the same sentence as him. And yet I, I saw some quite fascinating stats today from Goldman Sachs. At a conference in November, between 80% and 90% of participants believed that Trump would get re-elected in November. Is that why investors aren't really looking at what's going on for the Democrats here? Because they're all assuming Trump will win here, and is that complacent? Yeah, I mean, there are, no, there are no certainties in politics, to say the least. Who thought that he would lose to Hillary, uh, he would beat Hillary Clinton? So I, I'd say the markets may be a little bit 
ahead of themselves right now. They certainly are sanguine about whoever wins. I would say this, though. If Bloomberg wins, I think he's got a better chance to get to 270 electoral votes. It won't be easy. But if he's really willing to spend billions and billions of dollars, that's a game changer. We're going to have to watch and see. Uh, he's clearly willing to spend the money. The question is, uh, do voters follow him at this stage? Do you think the Democratic Party come to a conclusion that he's as good as it gets for them? Well, you know, that you, you, you touch on the key issue, and that is the growing dissent within the party. Uh, I think a lot of young left-wing Democrats won't go out to turn out to vote. If Bloomberg is at the top of the ticket, they'll just say, I'm, I'm going to stay at home. Uh, I think when they go to Milwaukee for their... Uh, conference, their convention in July, these fissures in the party will become quite obvious. Still another reason to believe, at least for now, that Trump is the favorite. I want to about turn now and talk to you about what's going on in markets. Some fascinating comments from a panel that my colleague John Defterius did, Ray Dalio, saying that the markets are overreacting here to the, the coronavirus outbreak and in the end will end up higher than we are today interesting divergence between what we're seeing in stocks and, and other assets, quite frankly, bonds and, and commodities. But what do you make of Ray Dalio's call here? I think the markets are underreacting to this. Uh, the amount of people infected has not peaked yet. Uh, there's talk of maybe hundreds of thousands when all is said and done who have been infected. Admittedly, it doesn't kill people as, as SARS did. But at the same time, th this is deadly serious. And I think it, it is crippled the entire economy of China, the second biggest economy in the world. People aren't going out, they're not going to movies, they're not going to stores. And I think that the markets have actually been a bit too sanguine about this. You know, it's interesting, there is a, a definite lack of information, I think, and, and trustworthy information about what's going on here, about infection rates, about just understanding the details here, which is a, which is a complication here, Greg. What do you want to hear from Jay Powell today? Is there anything, do you think, that he can say for uh, not only the U.S. economy, of course, but investors will be keenly watching too? Well, he has to address the virus, and I think he'll make it clear that the Fed is prepared to to do more if they have to. Uh, the markets are expecting one rate cut probably in the summer. He might make it clear that's, that could very well happen, maybe another one as well. So I think he's going to sound very, very accommodative. The idea that there could be a rate hike, we got a great jobs report, as you know, last Friday, but a rate hike isn't even remotely on the table, I think, for the rest of this year. So Jay Powell's on side, as far as Donald Trump is concerned, heading into 2020 at least. Yeah, right inadvertently, perhaps. <laughs> We're not done yet with the Trump-Powell fight. If Powell doesn't cut rates and we go well into the summer with rates steady, the, the fight resumes and Trump will begin tweeting once again about the Fed chairman. Yes, watch this space. Greg Bellier, fantastic to have you with us as always. Have a great day. You bet. And that just about wraps up the show. I can give you a look at where we're trading as far as U.S. markets are concerned. We are in record territory for the S&P and the Nasdaq, inching ever higher for the Dow here. We'll continue to watch this for you. We're back in a couple of hours' time with the Express. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Have a great day wherever you are in the world.
We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.